Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute, and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as your Word is declared this morning, may you meet us here. May you impart life by your Spirit and through your Word. We ask this in anticipation knowing that you have called us to gather together in the name of your Son, and that you have promised to meet with us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We've been going through now for several weeks uh, the idea of suffering as Christians. And i got news for you. It's going to be a couple more weeks on suffering in First Peter. And it is no secret as we zoom in on verses 1-6 through six here this morning, that we live in a time that could be described as that people are offended all the time. It's actually really kind of exhausting how offended people are by even the littlest of things. This leads many of us to walk around on eggshells. We can be worried, especially out in public, that we might just say the very wrong thing and someone will be triggered and, well, then all hell breaks loose. And when we act that way, this just gives power to the people who are constantly offended to rule over us. It is always their sensibilities that we are seeking to uh, remove or live by. Poll after poll demonstrates that people in this country in in general are overwhelmingly sick of it. Most Americans hate what is called cancel culture, and yet it continues to rule over us because we live in fear. We are too cowardly, collectively, to stand up to it. We're afraid that we might be the next a rabbit or mole who pokes his head out of the hole and gets whacked down. I've said numerous times to, in many settings that our current problems as a society today are not due to a lack of information. It's not due to a lack of understanding. It is at its base level a lack of courage. It's a lack of courage. So many of our people know exactly what is wrong, but we don't care. We like our comfortable lives. We like the things that we have, and there's nothing wrong with liking those things. And we don't want to lose them. So we're cowards. If those who loved good and hated evil all stood up together, all of, many of these problems we're having today would stop today. But then again, that requires courage. Our obsession with being offended all the time continues. And if we're honest, we, know, we now have people who are basically professionals at being offended, and I want to be clear on this, on the political left and the political right. There are people who are screaming, who are offended by everything all the time. We have bought into this idea that the mere idea of being offended grants someone the moral high ground. Well, you've offended me. Who cares? But we act as if 
That gives us some moral standing. I think we've all felt it at some time in our life. We, we see something that we believe to be wrong, and we give into that anger in the moment, and it feels very right. It feels very righteous. And then later on, upon reflection, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we got angry over something that either wasn't necessarily wrong, it was more a preference, or it really wasn't that big of a deal. And then, if we're really walking in the Spirit, we have to go back and apologize for acting in such a way. But we have this tendency to convince ourselves in the moment that it is right. And it can feel very empowering. If you listen at all to the uh, woke movement of our day, that word I just said, empowering, is huge to it. It's the idea of empowering individuals, empowering change, empowering movement. Because why? Because all of life has been reduced to a quest of power. There is no standard of right or wrong anymore, but there is only power. And whoever has the power can wield the power however they want. And so if you want to make the world better, now don't ask what, how we're actually measuring things is better because there's no standard out there. But if we want to make the world better, we just redistribute the power. We hand it out to some and not to others. And so we invent things like microaggressions, where people get upset because somebody said something slightly offensive and then they need to play with coloring books and Play-Doh in college uh, to overcome it. Something that was, would have been a nothing burger in any generation before. How do you and I live in such a day where offense is a commodity to be traded and to be used to climb the ladder? The sermon title for today is How to Offend the World. It appears a very easy answer because, well, it doesn't take much. To exist as an actual Christian today in our moment is to be offensive. There's a song out there. It's called um, Offend in Every Way. This was written before this, this movement. And there's a line in it that says this, No matter what I do, I offend in every way. And I really want to make that my theme song for life. Because I feel like that. According to one side of the spectrum today, I'm about as offensive as you can get. I'm a white male, I'm straight, I'm Christian, I'm conservative, I believe in an absolute standard of right and wrong, I'm proud to be an American, realizing there are problems now and there have been problems in the past. I have a wife who stays at home, who homeschools our children, and to top it all off, I'm a pastor. I am, I am public enemy number one to a certain segment of society, and I don't say any of that to make you feel pity for me. Some of those things I've... I've chosen. Right? I've taken them on willingly. And I stand by them unapologetically. And to a large extent, if you know me, I don't care. Right? We need to regain the, the, the holy appetite or disposition of not caring. But in many ways, my mere unapologetic existence is triggering how do I offend the world? I exist. Mission accomplished. We can close the book and move on. But there is more to this passage than just being offensive in a triggering age. There is a right way to be offensive and there is a wrong way to be offensive. And we should note here that the question is not if we are offended by certain things. Everybody gets offended by something. The, the real question is, is, what standard are you getting offended by? And then how do you act when you're offended? I've said this many times throughout this series. Just because you are wronged does not mean you can wrong others in return. This is 
basic biblical morality. Jesus had someone slaps you in the cheek, turn and give them the other cheek. Just because somebody is offending you doesn't mean you should just turn around and lay in to them. But here, in 1 Peter 4, we are pointed again to the example of Christ in his suffering. Peter points us to that in verses 1 and 2. Listen to these words again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There is so much in these these two verses, so much jam-packed into them. Christ, we read here, he suffered in the flesh. And this is speaking about his incarnation, that God the Son, who is eternally God, fully and truly God, came down to earth. All right, in, the, in the Paul's letters in Philippians, it talks about this humbling, this humiliation, that the eternal God would add to himself a human nature. That was an act of suffering for him. And the suffering finds its peak in the cross of Christ. And so Christ suffered for us. He bore God's wrath for the sins of his people. And we are commanded here to, quote, arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Just as Jesus Christ set his face towards suffering, not running away from it, you and I are to arm ourselves with the very same way of thinking. This again alludes back to this idea of the war we find ourselves a part of. Everyone is a part of this war. It's a war between good and evil, between darkness and light, between Christ and Satan. And so our thinking must reflect that, that you are in a battle. Whether you want to be or not, you are in it. And you need to have a willingness to take whatever ground you can, wherever you can. Whether that's in your home, in the church, your community, your nation, in your job, the world, the gospel is to go forward, it is to declare the victory of Christ, and it is to take ground. This is possible because of that, that next clause. It sounds counterintuitive to us. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What is meant by has ceased from sin. I told you in these next couple of weeks we're going to have a lot of weird sounding passages in 1 Peter. Well, well, here's another one. What does it mean that if we are suffering in the flesh, we have ceased from sin? Clearly, Peter does not mean that when a Christian suffers, that he or she is perfected, saying that you will never sin again. Such a statement runs counter to what the Bible says elsewhere. 1 Peter, or sorry, 1 John. 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The Bible does not disagree with itself. So what, what does he mean here? What is Peter getting at here? The best option here is to understand that when we are willing to suffer for Christ, and then we do indeed suffer, it breaks a major hold of sin over your life. Like When you suffer for Christ, it brings perspective. It brings growth. It sharpens our minds and put things into a proper order. When we are willing to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ and willing to suffer, 
it is a major aid to killing the power of sin in your life. It empowers and strengthens your faith. This is where Peter goes next. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Suffering serves to change the direction of your life. Not perfection, but direction. To do God's will instead of your own. Consider, if you will, an example of the uh, distant or not so distant bad memory of the COVID-19 pandemic. In a way, the whole world was suffering and the goals of many people's lives during that time changed because of that suffering. We saw people, as they were forced to stay home, start to reprioritize their life around family time and less around work. We saw people move halfway across the country, uproot their entire lives because they said, I can't live in this state anymore, so I'm going to go to a state that more aligns with how I want to live. We saw people realize that their churches wouldn't stand up for them in moments of tyranny, so they left churches after years of being there to find more faithful ones. We saw parents come to terms with the insanity of our current public school system and decided they were going to do the sacrificial thing and either pay for private school or homeschool their kids. Suffering brought clarity. People started to reevaluate everything they were doing. That's the same point Peter's making here. That when you suffer for Christ, you start to see things differently. You start to prioritize and value things that you didn't before. When we suffer for Christ, it realigns our thinking and our living. And Christ gives us the example. When Christ was in the wilderness after his baptism, he went 40 days and 40 nights with no food. And he suffered. And if you're reading your Gospels carefully, you notice that the contrast is intentionally set up here between Christ and Adam. Between Christ and Adam. Adam existed in a perfect paradise, a luscious garden. And he was tempted by the very same serpent in this garden. He lived in a world with no sin whatsoever, ample food, and Satan said, here, eat this. And Adam and Eve ate it. Christ was tempted by that serpent in a desert, starving with no food in a world riddled with sin. Contrast. So Satan then goes to tempt Christ by quoting Scripture to him. He says, here, take these rocks, make them into bread. You can eat. You can be full. Christ says, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, how, well, how about you go up to the temple and you jump off and you'd be rescued. You wonder, why was he, how was that tempting? So that Christ could be seen for who he really was. It's like, why don't you do this great act just to build up your own name? Christ says, no, I'm not going to do that. And Satan says, well, how about you bow down to me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Like Christ came for the kingdoms of the world. Satan says, if you bow down to me, I'll give them to you and you're not going to have to suffer. And Christ says, no, I serve the Lord alone, not you. So Christ is tempted with food, with power, possessions, with great acts, but he was not living according to the flesh and he sought to serve the Lord. That same mind you and I are called to arm ourselves with. So Peter now gives the, the contrast. 
That's what we are to do. Look at verse 3. How do unbelievers live? For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The life of the unbeliever tends to degrade and devolve into self-seeking, and generally that self-seeking manifests itself through seeking pleasure, no matter the cost. This is self-evident in our day, self-evident in Peter's day. So Peter lists some sins here. These sins revolve around two things, drunkenness and sexual immorality. These were staples of a life in Rome of that day. They are staples of life in our own day. The two normally go hand in hand, drunkenness and sexual immorality. Whether it be from temple festivals in Rome to frat houses today. It's the same thing. From guild festivities to corporate America work parties. It's the same thing. As much as things change, they really never do. And so we have turned selfishness and self-seeking today not only into a virtue, but as the chief good to be sought. You are told in a million different ways to look within, to give fullest expression to your deepest longings, and that as long as you are authentic to who you are, that is you being you, that's the standard to live by. And so here we are. A time where people can literally parade around in downtowns across the country, naked, breaking multiple laws, naked, running around in front of small children, and no one gets arrested. And the people, like me, who criticize it, were viewed as the weird ones. Like, talk about a, a messed up age that we live in. In Peter's time, it was, the, it was the same thing. This idea of drunkenness and sexual sin occurred as a part of the temple worship of that day and the guilds or the professions of corporate gatherings. The guilds would gather together, they would go to temples, they would offer sacrifices and have religious feasts and get drunk and do unspeakable sexual sins with the temple prostitutes. That was public life in Rome. Everyone was expected to partake in it, and if you didn't, you were weird. And so we find ourselves in a very similar situation today. Go to this DEI meeting at a Fortune 500, see what they encourage, see what they ask you about, see what they demand as a part of your modern guild celebration. Go to those parades downtown. The same thing are done and open and celebrated. And as much as things have changed, they really haven't. This is the life of an unbeliever. Life without God devolves into sheer selfishness expressed through partying and sleeping around. And this often devolves further and further into greater and greater sins and absurdities. It happened to Rome. It is happening today. God is literally handing us over to our sins. Says, you want this? Go ahead, you can have it. Well, this is getting kind of crazy. Well, the steps before were crazy too. We just didn't want to admit it. This is the contrast offered to the call of the Christian. They seek pleasure. They disobey God and follow their own hearts. Christians are willing not to forsake all pleasure, but to seek pleasure in a God-honoring way and to even forego pleasure and endure suffering for the cause of Christ. 
Two paths. You go this way or you go that way. And that leads us to how I titled this sermon. How to offend the world. Look at verses 4 and 5. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. As the world goes about in its sin, in its sexual deviancy, and we do not affirm it, and we do not partake in it, they are surprised. They are offended. Like, they cannot imagine that you wouldn't want to do that. They cannot fathom that there are people still in this world who live this way. Why is it shocking? Because these sins are popular. These are the sins that bring the community together. They are the celebrated sins. How can Christians be against what the culture celebrates? Shouldn't you Christians nuance that opposition into oblivion? Shouldn't you seek to be winsome in how you respond to it? Or do you just realize that confrontation is unavoidable at this point? So it was in Rome, so it is today. We have gone from allowing sexual sin to celebrating sexual sin to now requiring that you celebrate or else. This is always the path of sin. It's never just one act. It's always a direction. Now you are literally threatened with loss of employment or cancellation from culture if you will not affirm and celebrate their deeds. They cannot comprehend that anyone would see the world differently. They cannot comprehend that you would not partake with them. To be a Christian, an actual Christian, is one who fears God and who does not fear man. To be a Christian is one who lives by grace and who stands firmly on what God has said. And that is enough to send this world into an epic meltdown temper tantrum like you've never seen from a two-year-old. We see it again and again. Someone has found out, someone who's popular or famous or in a position of power, has found out that they're an actual Christian. They actually believe certain things. And then the mob comes after them and tries to get them fired. And then sometimes they capitulate and offer a non-apology apology. I'm, sure you've, I'm sorry if you've felt that way. I'm sorry if I, if I offended Anyone? Well, (laughs) I'm not sorry. (laughs) I'm just not. The obvious question is, why? Why do they need us to affirm them? Why do they need us to partake in the sin? You should take a step back here and think about this. Why do they need you to join in? Why is it so offensing and enraging to them if you won't? The answer gets to the heart of the problem. It is because their consciences are literally crying out. They feel their own guilt. And when you join in, and when Christians affirm them, it assuages, it lessens that guilt for a moment. But if you refuse to partake in it, they feel convicted of their sin. Like, you don't even have to say anything. And they're like, man, you are so judgmental. I didn't even say anything. I'm just not walking around in a rainbow shirt. You guys are so judgmental as they judge you for being judgmental. By merely not partaking, we bring conviction to their seared and sensitive consciences and they don't like it. Sin is a real thing. It brings death with it. 
And it really does tear people up from the inside out. The more you internalize that sin, the more you make it a core of who you are, the more you will carry guilt around with you, and the more demented you become as a person. Man was made in the image of God. Man is like God. Sin is the opposite of God. The more you sin, the less you become like what man was supposed to be. Sin scars and disfigures us. And it cries out not only for judgment, but it tears us apart and makes us less human. This is why the Bible refers to those who are very far gone in sin often as animals. They're acting like animals because they're becoming less like what God made us to be. Why do they demand we say it's all good? Because deep down they know it's not all good. You live in God's universe. You know what you're doing is wrong. You just want me to make you feel better. To make that guilty voice in the back of your head go away. But that's not love. This guilt and our refusal to partake in their deeds reminds them of the reality of verse 5. That God will judge the living and the dead. Everyone who has ever lived will stand before the Lord God and will have his or her deeds judged. Everyone sitting in this room, myself included, will stand before the infinitely holy God and he will judge you. Want to talk about being judgmental? God's going to judge you. You will stand before him and I will stand before him and there is no hope of escape on our own merits. None of our silly cultural slogans that will be forgotten in two generations, will matter at all to him. You won't be able to say, well, God, I was really just following my heart. It's all good. He'll say, no, it's not. You weren't supposed to follow your heart. Well, God, love is love. Don't you, don't you know that? No, I'm love, God will say. What you are doing is not love. All of those arguments will burn up in front of a holy God. And it is this judgment that hangs over mankind, and it is this judgment that makes the rebellious so uneasy. For they know deep down that their evil deeds are indeed evil, but they want to suppress that knowledge. And so when Christians come along and they say, no, what you're doing is okay, they're not helping people. They're not loving people. They're sending lambs to the slaughter. But when true Christians come along and refuse to partake, or to refuse to say, yeah, it's okay. It pricks their consciences. They don't like it. They get uncomfortable. It's good that they're uncomfortable. The reminder of judgment moves us to the therefore. What now? Okay. Some good news. God's going to judge everyone. We are to live differently. What now? Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So here we are again. Difficult verse to understand. It sounds odd to our ears. Who are the dead that the gospel was preached to? As we talked about last week, this cannot be people who were dead and then after dying, they had the gospel preached to them. The Bible doesn't allow that. It is appointed for man to die once and then to face judgment. Some take dead here to refer to a reference as those who are spiritually dead. So if you think about Ephesians chapter 2, and we say we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. 
Is Peter here referencing that? Is he saying, we preach to those who are spiritually dead. This is why we preach uh, the gospel to them so that they might be brought to life. It's possible. I think it's unlikely because the immediate context here seems to be using physical death. So what is this a, a reference to? Listen carefully. It's kind of hard to word rightly. This is a reference to the general preaching of the gospel. The dead, Peter is pointing to here, are those who have had the gospel preached to them when they were alive, but have since died. It's like, this is why we preached, we've been preaching the gospel for all this time, and some people are dead. Like, God's going to judge the living and the dead. We preach to the people who are dead now. We preach to them before they were dead so that they would be forgiven, right? that they could repent and believe. Notice the past tense here. We have preached past tense to those who are now dead, present tense. We have preached to people for some time. Some of them are dead. Some of them believed. Some of them have not. The principle remains the same. God has appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. And in light of that, in light of the fact that we know we're all going to die, we're all going to face judgment, we preach the gospel. We say Jesus Christ is the only hope. Or as Peter puts it here, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Eternal life through Christ by the Spirit is offered to every person who would repent and believe. To every person who would throw himself or herself upon Christ in faith. This gospel that we preach is offensive. Right? Free grace. You don't you don't have to do anything. You can't earn it anyway. God's going to give it to you for free. Well, I want to do something. I want to feel like I'm contributing. You don't get to contribute. Christ has done it all. And this is a stumbling block, a rock of offense, the Apostle Paul reminds us. Think of some of the ways in which the gospel is offensive. It preaches a crucified Messiah, offensive to the Jews. The Messiah was going to come. He was going to conquer the nations, not be killed by them. It preaches an incarnate God, a God who took upon himself human flesh. This is offensive to the first century Gnostics who thought physical things were inherently evil. A God could not become flesh. That's wrong. You can't do that. It's offensive to them. The Savior of the world was killed upon a cross. Offensive to the Romans. Like That's the lowest death you could get in Roman society. Roman citizens couldn't be put on a cross. If you get killed on the cross, you're the lowest of the low. That's not a God. That's offensive. Christ, the risen one, the creator who holds all things together, who made all things offensive to the Darwinistic scientist. An eternal judge will judge the living and the dead, offensive to our postmodern relativists who say there is no right and wrong. The call to suffer, offensive to the hedonist who only seeks pleasure. The call to lay down your life for others, Offensive to the follow-your-heart crowd and to express-yourself crowd. The call to live by God's sexual ethic. Male and female, united for life. Offensive to the first century Romans and offensive to the LGBTQ alphabet soup of our day. The risen universal Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, offensive to the secularists and the progressives. I could go on how offensive this message is. The gospel declared 
and lived out is offensive to this world in these ways and many more. And here's the good news though. That world desperately needs that offensive message. It does not need people to affirm them in their sin. So I want to make three applications for us as we bring this to a close. The first is this. As Christians, we need to learn to not care what the world thinks about us. They want you to join in so that they can silence that voice inside their head. But they need that warning. In answering the question, how do we offend the world? By being a faithful Christian. So this means you should not view it as a failure that those in the world hate you. Don't get me wrong, you can be a jerk and they can hate you for that. But if they hate you because you are following Christ, that's a victory. Second, live your life knowing that judgment is coming. Everyone, including Christians, will stand before God and give an account for their actions. And this should motivate you to live a certain way, and it should motivate you to look at how they're living and not envy it. Their life is not better than yours. You know the end of such a way of life. It should motivate you to live rightly, and it should motivate you to love others in such a way that you will preach the gospel to them. For we desire that they escape wrath just as we have. Third and finally, arm yourselves. You should note that at the opening of this passage, we have this militaristic term. Put on your armor. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ, with the thinking of Christ. He did not follow the passions of this life into sin. He stood toe-to-toe with the enemy in the wilderness and didn't back down. He did not run away from suffering, but he looked to the cross and went there willingly. So arm yourself with the thinking of the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. Arm yourself with his gospel and go forward. Take ground. Do not retreat. For Christ was buried, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming back. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We ask that you would give us such a courage that we would live as happy Christians. That we would live as Christians who look different than this world for all the right ways or in all the right reasons. Lord, may you strengthen us by your word and by your spirit to be those who offend the world rightly and in doing so offer them the hope of the crucified and risen Lord. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. It's in your name we pray. Amen.